Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello, guys and girls. The program you are about to hear will be both fun and educational, but it is not a substitute for medical advice. Although we are doctors, we are not your doctors. Hello and welcome to Travel Medicine. As always, I'm your friendly neighborhood internal medicine doc, Dr. J. Hey guys, Dr. Santos here, pediatric infectious disease doc, researcher, man about town, the little kahuna, the <laughs> moderate sized man on campus. Am I, am I getting some AKAs here? What's going on? Well, you can't give yourself a nickname. That would be auto naming yourself and oh, the horror. So you were talking about the horror. The yes. Horror, the horror. The horror of the horror of yeah. doing something to yourself, whether it be a nickname or mm. or pertinent to this week's topic, a disease. Boom. Yeah. Segue. <laughs> so our topic today, I have the outline ready for you today. Yeah, I did my own prep. I am going to talk about and present to you the history of what we nowadays call rheumatologic disease or what you may know as autoimmune diseases. Let me ruminate on that for a bit. <laughs> this one comes from, well, what we used to call rheumatism, you know, R-H-E-U, rheumatic, where, you know, they'd say, oh, I'm just kind of achy and painy. Oh, it's, it must be rheumatism. And that merged together with this concept of autoimmunity over time. And Josh, I'm so, so happy because we are going to be starting in Victorian times. Oh, so this is the room where it happens. Yeah. <laughs> there are several rooms. And in the end of it all, we are going to start from a period of time in human history where we couldn't even conceive of autoimmune disease, where it was actually verboten. And we're going to come around all the way 
to where there was a discovery made, or several discoveries, I should say, of how humans specifically, but otherwise animals as well, can form antibodies against their own tissues, attack their own bodies and tissues with their immune system, and have a convening of the minds, an actual convening of the minds, ending in a gorgeous, you know, 900 plus page manuscript where <laughs> you the, the understanding of autoimmune disease came together. You're the only person who's like, a meeting of the minds resulting in a gorgeous manuscript. Yes. That's what look I'm talking at the, about. Look at the reams of paper. <laughs> I, it's my understanding that during the first half of the century, autoimmune disease was viewed as, shall we say, biologically implausible. Yeah, absolutely. So just to give credit where credit is due, um, I'm mostly drawing from uh, a beautiful essay called Travels and Travails of Autoimmunity, A Historical Journey from Discovery to Rediscovery uh, by Dr. Ian R. McKay, uh, who is in the Department of Biochemistry and Molecular Biology at Monash University in Australia. Take us through the travels and travails of autoimmunity. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, Josh, I'm going to take you back and start with uh, Dr. Paul Ehrlich. He actually was not a, a bacteriologist by and large. He was one of the fathers of modern immunology to actually start out with. The major period that we're going to concentrate on is actually towards the end of his life, uh, 1900 to 1915. The, the, the germ theories were just coming out, Josh. Okay. We had good germ theory and, you know, it was codifying and we were understanding it. We still didn't know how to fight anything, right? But we could understand that there were these microorganisms that caused disease. We were on the cusp of understanding that there were things that were even tinier than bacteria, things that would later on be called viruses. Uh, and that would come, you know, during Ehrlich's time. But more than anything else, uh, Ehrlich is known for one of your favorite topics, which is the early advent of antibiotics. So he created an arsenic compound, which we've covered before on this po podcast called Salversan. You remember it? Do I remember Salversan? Of course not. I took too much Salversan. <laughs> we all know arsenic causes memory problems. <laughs> Stop asking me these questions. You don't need to take Salversan. You can use penicillin nowadays. What's the matter with you? How else am I going to treat this pirate syphilis? <laughs> With penicillin. <laughs> Stop it. Okay. So Ehrlich, Ehrlich worked with uh, a couple of other wonderful people who we've also reviewed on this podcast. So his assistant from Japan was actually Kiyoshi Shiga. He has the honorific of Shigella. And so Shiga and Ehrlich had worked together along with Alfred Bertheim and uh, Sahachiro... Hota, or Hata, sorry. And these folks were the ones who came up with uh, this Salversan compound. And this was the first time that Ehrlich found what was called a magic bullet. The magic bullet, Josh, okay? So if you fire a magic bullet, right? So if I, if I fire a magic bullet at you, but the evil guy is behind you, right? 
the bullet is magic. So it doesn't hurt you, but it goes right through you and kills the bad guy behind you. Okay. So his magic bullet was actually conceived as something that you could give to a host or a human and it would kill the bacteria within the human, but not the human. So you could poison an environment, but not kill the actual person. And so he found it. He found Salversan and later on Neo Salversan. And he was taking care of syphilis, taking care of business, you know, all this kind of stuff. And this was under kind of the watchful eye of Dr. Robert Cook. Um, who had appointed him to the Institute for Infectious Diseases. So, and in 1908, okay, while he was studying bacteria, he was also studying the function of the immune system. One of the coolest experiments I've ever seen is, do you remember the poison ricin? Of course, made famous in Breaking Bad, the only television show where I found myself rooting for cancer. (laughs) Exactly. So... He actually found a way to, a la Princess Bride style, right, with the Iocane powder, he accustomed the mice to ricin over time. He made ricin immune mice. He built up a resistance to it like Iocane powder? Like Iocane powder, right. And he created the first kind of strain, although it wasn't really a strain, it was a colony of mice that were ricin resistant. In the midst of this, because ricin is a toxin, he was looking at the serum that was in the blood and he was developing these things that were called anti-sera. He said, oh, there's actually this system in here that, you know, this building up over time isn't a magic process. There's a biochemical process going on. And he was studying this anti-sera, and the major contribution that he got his Nobel Prize for in 1908 was that he took the idea of anti-sera and applied it to diphtheria, okay? So the diphtheria antitoxin, which we have nowadays, which is actually an anti-serum, it's an antibody, that one came principally from Ehrlich. Now, Ehrlich didn't invent this. But he did something that's even more fascinating to geeks like me. He created a standardization model to measure the actual amount of or concentration of, you know, potency in a serum. Can you believe it? Isn't that awesome? I mean, it's no 600 page paper, but I guess it's <laughs> impressive. 900, 900. Don't, don't. <laughs> My mistake. Yeah. <laughs> so he created the standardization of anti-sera. He talked a lot about in his mouse models and other animal models that he had about inherited immunity. Okay. So the idea that we have right now where when a baby is born, that baby has the immune profile along with the antibody that mother has made. And, you know, it's gifted that those antibodies through the umbilical cord, through the blood, it crosses the placental barrier. And so this idea and evidence for inherited immunity really came from Ehrlich. You know, he actually identified what these antibodies do in the immune response. He came up with the idea of an antigen, so something that creates, uh, he said, well, there's something weird going on here, right? Because there's these foreign things that come into a body, and these are recognized as antigens, and then we make antibody against them. But he scratched his head because he 
could not get an animal, and in this case it was goats, to react, <laughs> <laughs> to, react to their own tissues. Okay? So he, he was like, well... That must have it? really gotten his goat. It really got his goat, I'm telling you. And this is the beautiful scientific curiosity that was going on in his head, right? He said, well, I, I can find a foreign body that's an invader or a bacteria or a toxin, and I introduce it to an animal, and they form antibodies, and they have an immune reaction. But what is going on here that, like, if I extract a goat's blood, and I keep it in a jar for a little bit, but then, you know, if I keep it sterile, I keep it safe, but then I inject it back, it's fine. It, it accepts its own tissues, no problem. And it said, uh, there's got to be some sort of protection in place from reacting against your own body. So he already had this concept in 1900. I thought the concept was that it was just unnatural. No, no body would knowingly injure itself. Thus right. the name horror autotoxicus. Literally, the body would be abhorrent of to itself, self, yeah, self right. injury so but here's the thing right so that had to kind of develop a little bit over time so in the meanwhile while Ehrlich is doing this we've got Julius Donath and Karl Lonsteiner all right who are reporting in the clinical world not in the experimental world in the clinical world three patients with blood and protein in the urine that seem to develop when they are cold, when the patients are cold. And Josh, this Donath Landsteiner autohemolysin is what we nowadays call cold autoantibodies or cold hemagglutin. So they were describing this and they said something odd is going on here, but believe it or not, Josh, we were in a problem where there was actually a barrier because the parlance of immunity, like the words antibody and antigen and, you know, all these kind of things, they weren't properly formed across Germany, Austria, and the rest of Europe. They actually published this paper, but it didn't really click anywhere else and say that, you know, hey, this, this is maybe what Ehrlich was talking about. In the meanwhile... Lonsteiner, who was 1868 to 1943, so he actually lived through World War II and all of this, he was looking at the same kind of self versus other antigen antibodies, but in a different parlance. And he's the one who we actually credit for modern transfusion. So he actually discovered the ABO blood groups, okay, and helped uh, discover the rhesus factor. Uh, and in 1930, uh, he got, you know, his Nobel Prize for his contributions to transfusion science, but he was looking at, uh, you know, this thing and, and said, oh, I will call this the autoambozeptor, which was autoantibody, and that such a substance might be the result of self-immunization. In this case, when a person gets cold, uh, you know, they create this. And so, so this is probably the first mention that we have of any of this. So Lonsteiner's over there. They've written their paper, Donath and Lonsteiner. Ehrlich is getting more frustrated, Josh. Okay. So he and other researchers, and imagine us doing this today and getting away with it. Okay. They said, okay, you can't give blood back to the goat and have the goat be 
immune against its own blood. So let's try other stuff. Okay. So they took the sperm <laughs> and injected it. They uh, took the lens of the eye out and they ground that up. They took parts of the brain and ground that up and injected it. And they said, ah, oh, I can't, get, you know, I'm trying to put like a chunk of body in another part of body and I can't do this. And I, on rare occasion, they were eliciting this kind of response that they were looking for. Couldn't get this to work. So this was when Ehrlich said, horror autotoxicus. He actually said there must be a contrivance. He didn't know what it was, but a mechanism, something that says autoimmunity is absolutely impossible. It just can't happen because otherwise the body would just eat itself. And he conceived of what this horrible thing would look like. And he called it horror autotoxicus. And he said, given that we don't see horror autotoxicus, it doesn't exist. So this was something, Josh, which science really abhors, where you create dogma. Like a, Sounds like, like a, a scientific tantrum. This yeah, would yeah. be terrible. <laughs> Therefore, it doesn't exist. It doesn't exist. And, you know, it's it's kind of like the end stage of like, ah, oh, I can't, get, I, I'm trying to make a thing happen and I can't make a thing happen. It must be completely unnatural and therefore it doesn't exist. And Josh, this is really important because this kind of created an eclipse of the autoimmune heart. disease. No, no. Oh. <laughs> it was actually an eclipse of the immune system, if you must. A total eclipse of the immune system? A partial. It was a partial eclipse. It's not a very system. catchy song, Santo. No, I know. I'm sorry. But that's really what it was. Nothing I can do. Just a partial <laughs> eclipse of the immune system. <laughs> and if I want to make it even more pedantic, it's a partial eclipse of the understanding of the immune system. Turn around. <laughs> But you couldn't turn around because this was Paul Ehrlich. This was a, you know, he had been granted his spot by Robert Cook, you know, who was a giant in the field of microbiology and, you know, uh, in immunology. And this was a, you know, person who understood immunology very well. How could you go against Paul Ehrlich? There was this hint of autoantibodies in the Donath-Leinsteiner uh, hemolysin when you have cold antibodies. And, you know, we're, we're talking about this stuff. The pieces were all kind of there, but they weren't coming together. So if we had to take the Notes version of how yeah. the pieces came together. Right. Started with our man Ehrlich. Yes. And, and, and talking about, and, and actually creating almost like a dogma against, yeah. So Paul Ehrlich had his mm -hmm. dogma and his goats. He did. <laughs> yeah. And he inseminated some goats with dirty blood. <laughs> no, no. And later, and later goat semen. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And lenses and brains and yeah. And said terrible things should happen. But they didn't, and I don't want terrible things to happen, so it's impossible. And therefore, I will call this impossible condition horror autotoxicus. And for yes. years and years, researchers simply said, yeah, well, you know, Dr. Ehrlich is pretty great. He knows what he's talking about, so we're not even going to bother to investigate this. Yeah, yeah. So what changed that led to the discovery of autoimmune disease. There are several things that had to happen kind of in parallel. The 
kind of the lessons of immunology, first of all, had to take place. So we actually understood the immune system better and better. We had to get better and better animal experimental systems to work on. Um, and finally, actually, we actually had to have a, a bit of a technological breakthrough, which was in fluorescent antibodies, where we could actually tag antibodies and watch them and see where they went under the microscope. And that really kind of was our, was our kicker. Uh, but I'll, I'll actually start off in the 1900s. We, we didn't really have a good name for immunology. We had the greats like Bourdais. And Bourdais is still remembered for the great Bourdais Jean Ju agar that we use in microbiology, which, of course, Josh, you know all about. Ah, yes. 19 something something. A very good year. <laughs> exactly. So first, you know, we started off actually the demonstration and understanding of the immune system actually came from studying what happened when you know, the immune system went wrong or when the immune system had to act, which is against pathogens, right? So in the era of germ theory and bacteriology, this all really started to bloom. When the immune system went wrong. Dun, dun. <laughs> That's a series that we will be yeah. <laughs> not promoting later this year. Okay. We have a pupil of Paul Ehrlich, who is August von Wasserman. Mm -hmm. You heard me right. All right. So he was creating the serological test for syphilis. Okay. And this is the modern RPR that we know today. So a non-tryponemal test uh, to actually detect, uh, you know, the, the, not the spirochetes themselves, but just antibody that tells you that there is probably syphilis going on. Nowadays, we know it's a nonspecific test, and what we have to do is actually do a proper tryponemal antibody to confirm it. I, I think but, we're getting a little far afield. How does this tie back to goats and autoimmunity? What he actually saw was like, okay, I can get these antibodies when you have, you know, the antigen is a spirochetely infected liver uh, from a fatal case. But hey, you know what? If I expose you know, the serum and stuff to just normal liver, non-infected liver, it's also positive. These, these antibodies from this syphilitic individual actually attack or attach to non-infected liver as well. So it's actually not going for the spirochete. It's going for normal tissue. So, you know, this proceeds on. Wheel and Braun, they say, maybe there's auto-stimulation by tissue lipids. So meaning that like the spirochetes actually break apart the cells. And then when the cells are broken open, the debris actually causes auto, meaning self-stimulation. Um, and you have this problem. But all the way up until the 1950s, we just didn't know what this was. And, you know, until we actually learned about like biological false positives. So these hints were still being laid out. But here's the interesting thing. Because Wasserman had created this uh, standardized reaction, this antibody reaction, which originally was for syphilis, it could be tried out on a bunch of different tissues and diseases. So, you know, it was tried out and investigated uh, in the so you're called... saying this test uh, really got around the block a few times. <laughs> yeah, like from it was the... used promiscuously to spread disease. No, no, to detect. Stop it. Oh, oh, my mistake. Yeah. It was used promiscuously to detect to diseases. Detect disease. Yeah, exactly. 
So there's a little bit of a jump because, you know, we're going all the way to the 1950s and 1960s, but Wasserman kind of laid this technological foundation where, you know, these patients that previously had just been called connective tissue diseases, okay? So these are lupus-like diseases where our immune system attacks our connective tissues, thyroiditis, okay? The Wasserman reaction was actually recognized in these uh, diseases as uh, time went on and on. Weirdly enough, Josh, though, even as Wasserman was developing these, there was this idea that was coming along of like, oh, you know what? The immune system's not all good. So 1902, Charles Richet, uh, Clement von Pirquet, in, in 1906, these guys were already coming up with something else that was kind of like autoimmunity, but not quite. And what they were describing was this thing called allergy. So the idea of, okay, you're reacting to foreign matter, but stuff that really shouldn't be a toxin. So at least at this point, we couldn't say, okay, we can't say autoimmunity, but we can at least show that the immune system is not like our friend all the time, if that makes sense. Allergy is basically the precursor to rheumatology, another something to ruminate on. And something to ruminate on. So around this time, 1910, we've got, you know, kind of an infrastructure. And then as early as 1915, coming together, the American Association of Immunologists. So the AAI, we, we've, we're finally coming together and we're having like a common conversation about immunology. And we can finally have discussions about, okay, the immune system's not all good. All right. We, we can do other things. 1915 to 1945. And I know we're doing like a big, you know, kind of uh, big eclipse. This is the this is the partial eclipse of the understanding of the immune system right here. As you turn around. <laughs> they did. They all turned around. The major things that came out of here was we have Pasteur's rabies vaccine. OK, that was made. You, you take the dried spinal cord from rabies-infected rabbits, and then you could use it. Okay, 5,000 individuals were administered this, and they were actually protected from rabies. It worked great. But here's what happened, Josh. There were people who didn't receive full protection from rabies. They still had breakthrough infection. And this was an interesting case because it was experimental autoimmunity in action, what the experimenters did and the researchers and the doctors is that maybe they need a higher dose. So they really pushed the dose. Okay. They gave this dried spinal cord rabies vaccine. And then, you know, they, they upped the dose, up the dose, up the dose. And all of a sudden we got this thing, which we now would call Guillain-Barre. All right. Ascending paralysis. And when you did biopsies of the peripheral nerves and things from these patients, um, you'd see inflammatory demyelination. Okay. They said, you know what, these injections, you know, when we, when we actually give them, um, you know, they're, they're creating this demyelination thing. And I, I don't quite know why I, I don't know where it's coming from. And there were these ideas still forming, percolating, and it's it's a really cool place to look, right, Josh? Because the brain and the spinal cord, the CNS, have immune privilege. The immune system really doesn't work very well because you've got that gorgeous blood-brain barrier protecting the brain and the spinal cord. So they're they're yeah, starting to write these papers. The one percent keeping itself separate 
from the common <laughs> immune system. <laughs> it, it is, it is, but you don't want inflammation ever in the brain and the spinal cord because unlike the rest of our tissues, a lot of them which can scar and then heal and regenerate, our brain and spinal cord can't do that, right? Those neurons cannot be fried like that. Stuff like complement and these cytokines and even antibodies have a tough time getting in there. So the generation of these type of antibodies in that space, in the CNS space and causing demyelination and inflammation is weird, but it was hypothesized because, you know, this was a, you know, kind of a privileged organ. So these researchers, you know, working on the model of demyelination in monkeys, you know, said, Hey, you know what? It could be due to the development of antibodies in here. And, you know, they tried the same thing, repetitive injections of homologous brain extracts uh, into rabbits under various conditions and, you know, caused paralysis. And when they, again, looked at the tissue, they saw, oh, I see some demyelination here. Okay. So 1935, we've got Rivers and Schwentker. Um, again, looked at these studies of taking these emulsions of brains and extracts and then, you know, putting them into monkeys and, you know, doing these injections and then studying the demyelination that happened with it. And they said, you know, I'm seeing this demyelination and possibly, possibly the immune system acting on it. But here's the problem. They didn't link these because these were experimental folks. They didn't necessarily link these to disease states in humans. Um, as in autosensitization, including, you know, all the way back in early 1900, Donath Leinsteiner's cold immune antibody. A, a, another really special case came along, post-streptococcal glomerulonephritis. I think we've talked about this before, haven't we, Josh? But we've covered okay. some of the steps uh, <laughs> okay. in the discovery that the body could, in fact, attack itself. But mm -hmm. depending on where it attacks itself, you can see a variety of different conditions. And while the body can sort of devour and cannibalize itself anywhere, let's focus on some of the most common autoimmune diseases that we tend to see. I'm a pediatrician. So the ones that I see in my field is we talk about uh, juvenile immune arthritis, it used to be called idiopathic arthritis, but it's actually immune arthritis, which is rheumatoid arthritis. Uh, we talk about uh, autoimmune uveitis, which is in the eye. We have inflammatory bowel diseases such as Crohn's disease and uh, uh, ulcerative colitis, okay, and everything that's kind of within that family. So if it attacks your, your intestines, mm -hmm. uh, if, if your intestines attack themselves, you get something like inflammatory bowel disease, so Crohn's or ulcerative colitis, right? Uh, which... Is the immune system attacking the lining of the intestines, causing episodes of rectal bleeding, urgent bowel movements, abdominal pain? Right. If it goes after other organs in your stomach area, you could mm -hmm. end up with diabetes, where you destroy insulin-producing cells. That's a type of autoimmune disease, type 1. Abs type 1 diabetes, right? You destroy your islet cells. Uh-huh. You've already talked about one of the conditions you can see if the immune system attacks the nerves gets into that privileged 1% brain and spinal cord. And that's Guillain-Barre, where you'll uh -huh. see weakness in the lower extremities climbing towards the upper body. 
Mm -hmm. and, and that's in the periphery. And as a corollary, uh, demyelinating disease, uh, actually, you know, in the body chronically over time, um, is MS, right? Multiple sclerosis. Yeah. So if it makes it all the way from the spinal cord up to the brain, it'll do it in fits and starts and you get right. MS. Mm -hmm. Um, now if it lasts in the brain or the spinal cord for a prolonged period of time, instead of happening in episodes, you will get something called chronic inflammatory demyelinating polyneuropathy. And boy, is that a mouthful. <laughs> yeah, we but condense it, it that CIDP uh, yeah. <laughs> means that a bunch of nerves, that's the polyneuropathy part, mm -hmm. are staying inflamed for uh, quite a long time. And that inflammation is eroding their protective fiber optic covering. Yes, the, the myelin sheaths or the Schwann cells, um, which actually help keep conductivity down the neuron and not kind of, you know, the electrical signals going haywire all over the place. Absolutely. Now, if the skin attacks itself, you get something like psoriasis, where you have a silvery, scaly plaques on the skin. Psoriasis for sure, but the rashes or the autoimmune, the, the big one that we all think about, which can hit any system in the body which is lupus right this santosh oh yes sir it's never lupus it's <laughs> but it's sometimes lupus it's never santosh <laughs> i don't know what your eight what i've plus been told. years yeah, yeah i don't know what your eight plus years of medical school taught you but yeah. four seasons of house have made it abundantly clear you didn't get through all seven Four seasons of house <laughs> have made it abundantly clear yeah. that it is never lupus. So we don't really even need to talk about it as a no, condition. No. It's, it's terribly important <laughs> because lupus was one of the most widely recognized, you know, actually autoimmune diseases, but it wasn't known that it was autoimmune, but it was actually named for that lupine, that wolf-like look you can get over your face. All the way back, you know, to the 1200s. So actually, that one is kind of like the the patriarch, you can say, the 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 uh, the model of autoimmune disease. All of autoimmune disease, although it began back in the Victorian era, really nothing took off until around the First World War. Yeah. So we had to get through to that. Um, there's one anecdote I'd love to tell you because it has a beautiful German word that I think that's also used in Yiddish. Oh, so in, in studying streptococcal glomerulonephritis, so you get a strep throat, right? You get better. And then after a while, for some reason, your immune system attacks your kidneys. And this happens in little kids. And you have that uh, tea-colored pee, tea-colored urine. You remember that? Your TP. Right. Got it. <laughs> exactly. Because you're spilling protein and blood into the urine for a while. Usually self-limiting, but... You know, the, these, these physicians, Schwentger, Comploir, were looking at these patients and they said, hey, you know what, rabbit kidney, we can, you know, get the serum from scarlet fever individuals. And they said, you know, over here, there must be some sort of antibody. The streptococcal toxin serves as um, something that kind of pushes the immune system along. You know, it makes it... Uh, it makes it schlep along. So they called it a schlepper. 
<laughs> and so for a while, that streptococcal toxin was called a schlepper. We, we have this now. Dr. Rivers is there. Uh, Landsteiner is still active with Bernay. And they're, they're starting to draw together this idea of autoimmune disease. Um, the, that Wasserman technique that I told you about, those Wasserman antibodies are coming in more and more and more. And F. McFarlane Bernay, all right, 1899 to 1985, is coming in and actually discussing now acquired immune tolerance. And Josh, you'll absolutely love this experiment. Um, they actually took, you know, the, these cow embryos, right? And you had twin embryos from the... Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Cow, the calves. And they actually said, you know what? If I actually take, while they're being formed the splenocytes from one of these twins to the other. And then later on, they found they could take it from another organism and put it, you know, introduce those splenocytes into the forming embryo that those cells could be incorporated into the growing organism and be just fine. And he's like, Hey, you know what? There's something going on here that the, the, the body is teaching itself to be tolerant to the immune system. And this was a paper, you know, in 1953. And then whatever you got those splenocytes from to put into the embryo in the first place, now that calf would accept a graft from that donor without rejecting it. That was huge. So not the not autoimmunity, but we were thinking about immune tolerance. And along with this, Josh, came the idea from Bernay in the 1940s, as we're coming up to like the understanding and discovering autoimmunity, we're understanding now something called clonal selection. So he actually figured out the mechanism by which, you know, these immune cells, either to fight disease or to get tolerance, were actually schooled like they were taught, right? And you start out with a bunch of different you know, heterogeneous group of, of white blood cells, and then you teach them. And then the ones that you don't like, you know, that act wrong, you just, you destroy them, you kill them. <laughs> or if they're trying to fight disease, you pick out the white cells, which make the best antibodies to a particular disease or an antigen, and you save those and you make more and more of those. And this idea now of immune education and clonal selection was now beautifully, beautifully coming out. Okay. And I want you to bring you then to 1946, where we talk about Blackwater fever 
and malaria because this is when things get so so hot. So so the modern age of autoimmunity began around mm, 1945 yeah. with the description of blackwater fever, which you're going to tell me about. And most of the research that followed led to, well, we'll get into that. So we've yeah. already talked about lupus that was recognized mm -hmm. around the mid 1940s by Hargreaves. Yes. It carried exactly. on and, into the sixties. Right. And, and specifically Josh, well, we knew about lupus as a syndrome for a long time. What Hargreaves found, and we'll get to this one in just a second, but he found the lupus, uh, erythito, uh, er, oh, God, Mark, he found the lupus erythematosus cell, the LE cell, the, the one that actually defined the disease. So the lupus erythematous cell was recognized in the mid forties by Hargreaves. Mm -hmm. This research carried on well into the sixties. Yeah, baby. Yeah, <laughs> now, absolutely. Yeah. Also in the 1940s, rheumatoid factor was described using those Dolly clonal sheep red blood cells. <laughs> really, kind of. What we're really seeing is all the different factors that we use to test for and diagnose rheumatoid disease in a hospital or medical setting right. really show up around the 1940s. It really was, yeah. And the steps that it really took was in in uh, blackwater fever. So after you have malaria, you know, again, you know, you can pee this. It's black water. It looks like well, black ear. And it's called black water not because you pick it up in standing pools of water, which was my right. original thought, but because yeah. your blood cells in malaria will periodically just, you know, burst inside of you <laughs> yeah. and if they yeah. burst inside of your kidneys you're mm -hmm. urinating out the empty little hollow pockets of red blood cells and that tends to turn your urine black so you are passing black water there you go exactly right so he looked at the the hemolytic complication and this was one of these where james gear and uh, south africa really started to say, uh, you know what, maybe it's not just the parasite. Maybe there's another, um, you know, auto antigen or auto antibody where, you know, the, the body is attacking itself. Again, they talked about the malaria acting like a schlepper. Okay. It's schlepping along the immune system. I still love it. So something that pushes the immune system in the wrong direction to attack itself. Another big development was Freund. Okay. Freund's adjuvant, which we add to a lot of our vaccines nowadays in order to stimulate immunity. But Jules Freund, 1942, said, oh, I can use this, you know, combination emulsion of oil and stuff. And if I give an antigen with this, it makes it kind of hyperimmune. Well, those folks who were working on the immune system said, oh, I can actually immunize animals against their own tissues if I add this Freund's adjuvant. So again, you know, it, it came up, is this allergic? You know, is this acting against the adjuvant or is there actual autoantibodies coming up? And this spurred everything on and we came absolutely just like you said to Hargraves initially in 1943 and then reported in 1948 that he actually found the lupus erythematous cell uh, effect and he actually got that from the sternal bone marrow where he found these purple inclusion bodies he said, hey hey 
I think this is the cell that's, uh, you know, responsible for SLE, for systemic lupus erythematosus. Now, how do you treat the body turning against itself? This was a real challenge back in the day. But thankfully, around the same time that we were discovering all the ways the body could turn on itself, we also had around April 1949... Only a week after Philip Hench and colleagues described the potential of a mysterious yet miraculous compound, Compound Mm -hmm. E, medical sensation of the late 1940s and early 1950s. Ooh, okay. Named Compound E so as not to be confused with Vitamin E, you you might recognize it better as cortisone. Oh, okay. All right. So we had the one of the first steroids. Yeah. And steroids, without going into some of the finer uh, pathways and specific science of how they work, we can say basically suppress your immune system, suppress your body's ability to recognize anything as foreign, and therefore decrease the inflammation that is the cause of so many of the symptoms regardless of what part of the body is attacked. Gotcha. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. And and that's because lipid soluble, it could go anywhere. And globally speaking, it suppresses inflammation. The best part is when the New York Times kind of first reported this in the 50s, they said, one doctor's assessment of a recent medical conference, it was like some sort of big tent religious meeting with men popping up all over the house to tell of some seeming miracle. And and while they were cautions that cortisone was not a cure and gave only relief from symptoms, and that is still true today, Mm -hmm. noted that the discovery could lead to new treatments and pathways for up to 20 other diseases. And so the Nobel Prize Committee was impressed so October 1950, the prize for physiology and medicine would go to Henchman, or I should say Hench et al., Hench, <laughs> Edward Kendall, and Thaddeus Reichstein for their discoveries relating to the hormones of the adrenal cortex, their structure, and biologic effects. Very, very cool. I love that. So cures were coming along as we were discovering these mechanisms, and just like you said, Josh, this was the era, you know, we, we had uh, the discovery of the LE cell, the lupus erythematous cell. We have the discovery of rheumatoid factor by Eric Voller. And he was, again, using the old school Wasserman reaction. And he actually found out that the sheep cells were agglutinating rather than lysing. And he found the antibody, which actually attached to other antibodies, And even though we call it rheumatoid factor, it's actually another antibody. Um, We had some crazy people who decided to inject themselves with serum. (laughs) Okay. So there's always one in every group of scientists. (laughs) So somebody's got to be that guy. Somebody's got to be that guy. So on the clinical side, uh, Harrington, all right. We have a disease called idiopathic, or nowadays we call it immune thrombocytopenic purpura, right, ITP, where all of a sudden our own immune system attacks our platelets and you you destroy all the platelets and you get bleeding, which is really, really scary. But he said, hey, what is it about it that does that? So 
He said uh, it might be in the serum itself. So he took the serum and he purified it from victims of ITP. And he went ahead and injected volunteers, including himself. <laughs> and immediately, the, you know, the circulating blood platelets, which just boom crashed. So this must be it. There's something in the serum that's attacking the platelets. And now these connections were being made. Okay, well, we have all these diseases in lupus. We have glomerulonephritis. Along came thyroid autoimmunity. Okay, so experimentally, they put thyroglobulin along with Freund's adjuvant and injected that into rabbits. And they formed the types of antibodies and created the disease that when you looked at it under the microscope, it looked exactly like human Hashimoto's thyroiditis. Um, so if we've learned how to create autoimmune mm -hmm. diseases, why yeah. can we not just as easily eradicate them? Because we have this miracle of cortisone, right? Which could at least lower inflammation for a time and alleviate symptoms. Well, it turns out that throughout all this time, when we're learning about immunity, we're also learning about immune inheritance and the education of the immune system, T cells and B cells. And before we reach our peak of understanding with the, the great New York conference in 1965, we have this body of knowledge that's saying, okay, you have an immune system, something stimulates it in the wrong way. We you know, called it a schlepper. All right. And it, it schleps the immune system and the immune system becomes educated in order to attack a specific tissue with a set of antibodies, which was one of the postulates that were first there um, in the 1940s to describe an immune system. Well, it turns out, Josh, that once you educate a cell or a lineage of cells, and then you have that clonal selection that was described, where you select out those cells and save them, it's really, really tough to uneducate those cells. Can't unlearn something. It's really tough. Yeah, exactly. And that's important, right? Because if you get hit with a pathogen, with strep pneumonia or with staph aureus, you want to remember, you want to have a good immune memory so that if you ever see that pathogen again, you beat the shit out of it. That's all our principles from vaccination as well. But if it's taught the wrong way, you know, if it gets a miseducation, a bad education, then that's it. That clonal lineage of cells is really, really tough to eradicate from the circulating white blood cells altogether. And I think that's a good bare bones introduction to the wide world of rheumatology. Absolutely. I do want to put a cap on it. Uh, just a, a quick cap. 1964, the International Conference on Autoimmunity, Experimental and Clinical Aspects, convened in New York Academy of Sciences, which yielded a 980-page, two-volume opus published in 1965, comprising 77 individual contributions. And then this, Josh, when everything really came together, um, put together the cause and description, an acknowledgement, like actual, like, hey, this exists, the rejection of Ehrlich's dogma from 60 years ago and saying autoimmune disease exists. And from then on, we learned, we had to learn about specific lymphocytes, B cells, T cells, major histocompatibility complex. And these would all come later on. But that meeting, Josh, was literally the foundation of what we now use as practice for the, the, 
science of autoimmunity. It does exist. They do exist. <laughs> suck it, Ehrlich. So I think that's a no, good... Don't suck it, Ehrlich. <laughs> I think that's a good introduction to the bare bones uh, foundation of autoimmune disease. And it's it's a wide, rich field that we're certainly not going to be able to cover in just a single episode. But, Santosh, we yeah. have a new website where we can cover things like this more extensively. So mm. you should go check it out. It's got sections for our old episodes and our library of progress, things like that. So check it out. Let us know what you think. As always, we love to hear your comments, questions, and feedback. The show is produced by me with a lot of help from Dr. Santosh and friends. Our theme music is composed by Rachel Leisure. If you'd like to support us spiritually, emotionally, or financially, links to do that are in the show notes and on our new website. Along, our uh, links to do that are in the show notes on our brand new website, along with links for further reading. Our theme music is composed by Rachel Leisure. Stick around after the credits to hear about another show that those of you who like our medical comedy education thing might be interested in. We have a trailer from another friend of the show. Listen, and uh, until next time, as always, wash your hands, wear a mask, get your shot, book a plane ticket, uh, avoid new variants. I'm really going to have to start coming up with a few more things to toss in here. But you, you know at what? the end of the day. We, we, we may need to cut this last part and just be like, have, have a good day. <laughs> and at the end of the day, be happy, be healthy, yeah. be safe. And happy travels. Bye, everybody. I'm Dr. Asif Doja. And I'm Dr. Ali Hassan. He is not a doctor. In fact, he is a stand-up comedian. Way to ruin it. In our new podcast, Doctor vs. Comedian, in each episode, I'll pick a topic from comedy and entertainment. And I'll question Ali about that. And then I'll pick a topic from health and wellness and question Asif about that. For example, I might ask, is laughter the best medicine? To which I might answer, for actual COVID-19, no. For the COVID blues that 7 billion people have been feeling lately, quite possibly. I'll supply the anecdotes. And I'll supply the evidence. And our goal is to be informative and entertaining. We'll be talking about serious topics in an unserious way. Upcoming topics include comedy, COVID, clowns, cannabis, and other things that don't start with C. So please subscribe to Doctor vs. Comedian wherever you get your podcasts. New episodes releasing every Friday. Or is it dropping? What what do people say these days? And scene. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 
This is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. Invesco QQQ is proud to sponsor this episode and even prouder to provide access to innovation for the last 25 years. Basketball has had innovations over the years, too. We're seeing the game played in new ways every day. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. <laughs> 